had to find a way to put a Star Wars clip in there at some point. Uh, keep referring to it after all. Uh, in this series, we've been talking about uh, what our response is or what role we play to adversity when it comes into our life. And we've looked at how the natural tendency of our sinful nature is to revert to either playing the role of a victim or a villain. And the victim and the villain basically are the ones who struggle with what the serenity prayer talks about. The serenity prayer says we accept the things we cannot change. And the villain says, no, I'll change everything and everybody around me. I'll control all of my circumstances so I don't have to hurt like this ever again. Uh, serenity prayer also says I will change the things that I can. And the victim says, well, what can I change? I can't change anything. But heroically, we're called to have the wisdom to know the difference and change the things we can, accept the things we cannot change. And oftentimes, that means we need to change through the process. And we find uh, throughout Scripture that it's so often adversity is the very thing that God uses to change us, to conform, to become more like His Son, Jesus Christ. So this final role, though, the villain, or sorry, the, uh, the guide, uh, the guide is simply a hero who never stopped evolving, never stopped changing, never stopped transforming, and just continued to keep on. We looked last week how one of the primary characteristics of a hero is a hero never quits. Well, if a hero continues to be a hero, eventually that hero kind of circles back around and becomes a guide to others who are struggling to break out of one of those two roles to accept their own heroic calling. So with Star Wars there, did you notice the role that Luke wanted to play in the story? Did you pick up on that? When you start to, to think about these four character types of the victim, the villain, the hero, and the guide, you begin to see it very clearly in movies. Uh, did you notice what, what role Luke wants to play? Did you pick up on it? The victim. What can I do? I'm a long way away from there. I can't do anything. I'm just a helpless farm boy producing blue milk out here in the wilderness. What can I possibly do, right? And that's where he's like, no, I want you to come and learn the way of the forest. He's like, I want to be your guide because you're being called into a heroic role. No, I can't do any of that. And it's only when adversity hits and hits real hard does he say, okay, what other choice do I have? Then to become a hero. And very often you'll see heroes are reluctant in stepping into that. So oftentimes it takes some kind of adversity to really break you out of the villain or victim path to become a hero. And we're going to see that when we look into the biblical story this morning. Some of the characteristics, though, of a guide in the stories that we read about is number one is the guide has experience. They've been there, they've done that. Uh, unfortunately, they've got the t-shirt of the bad experience of the pain that they've gone through. Uh, and it's from that experience that they're then able to help guide others. Uh, I like how, oh, and by the way, there's a term we use in the Bible or in church, church world for the guide. Anybody know what that is? We call him either a shepherd or a disciple maker. Uh, in the Old Testament, you see the concept of shepherd a lot. New Testament, you'll see the term disciple maker. Really, all that's talking about is this role of the guide. As a matter of fact, all of Christianity, God's entire vision and plan for all of Christianity was built on this concept of heroes becoming guides, of those who uh, accept their role and their identity to become more like Jesus Christ. That's the role of the hero. And then ultimately become a disciple maker. The very last thing Jesus says as he leaves the earth when the bad special effects are happening, at least that's what it seems like in the shows, um, right as, he, as the bad special effects are coming on, he says, go into all the world and make disciples. That's what he, his plan is, to make disciples. And he, later on he says, you know, teach them and, and baptize and those things. But those are all a part of the disciple-making process. Disciple-making isn't a one-time, real quick thing. It is a process that takes a while. That's why so oftentimes people will say, well, how do I join Essential? And we want to really try to focus more on the disciple-making role of the church rather than just the church growth model of the church. And so we typically will say back, well, 
what do you want to join? We have two disciple-making opportunities for you. You can join a small group or you can join a service team, and in both of those, you'll end up in uh, having opportunities to grow in your relationship uh, with Jesus Christ, like the hero role, or to serve as a guide where you're helping others grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ. And you can do both of those within the context of a service team or a small group opportunity. And so when people say, I want to join, we simply say, well, then great, then join a disciple-making process that we have here at the church of a small group or a service team. That's why we're always pushing those two things because we're about making disciples. And what happens in here on a Sunday morning is not disciple-making. It may be a process of it, but that really happens in the context of the small groups. And so that's why we push that as a church. Uh, And Celebrate Recovery, they have the same concept. Uh, Step number 12 is having had a spiritual, anybody want to know what the word is? Experience. Having had a spiritual experience, we want to go and, as a result of these steps, carry this message on to others. And that's all about, that's what the 12 steps are all about, is that I'm heroically stepping out of the role of the villain or the victim. That's what I once was. I'm heroically stepping into the role that God has called me to, and then ultimately one day coming back around as a role of a, well, they don't use the word guide. They use the word, anybody know? Sponsor. So we, we have words for these. We, every group has a different term for it. So shepherd, disciple maker, sponsor, it's all the same thing. It's the role of the guide, one who goes back to help based on the experience that they've had. Uh, Paul takes on this role in the New Testament. He says, follow my example as I follow Christ. Uh, Elsewhere you see, you who are spiritual, uh, if you see somebody who's falling into sin, this is over in uh, Galatians chapter 6, you who are spiritual, if you see someone falling into sin, go back and help them to restore them, to pull them back out. It says, but be careful, watch yourself, or you may be tempted. You may go back and become a villain in the process of going back to help somebody, but remember, you're called to be the guide and not go back into that villainous role of trying to control them and manipulate them to make the right decision. So back to what we're talking about. What does a guide do? Uh, The guide uses their experience. Uh, They also use their wisdom. Now, where does their wisdom come from? Failure. Uh, They have failed again and again and again, and that's why they have the wisdom. I think at some point we're going to be doing a series on failure, how we see failure, the proper way of seeing failure. Uh, but simply, failure leads to wisdom. And it's really hard to communicate that when you're a guide, especially to, I don't know, your kids, right? Because you tell them something that comes out of your wisdom, which is based in your own experience and your own failures, and they take it as, you want me to have no fun, you're just a downer, you don't know what you're talking about, right? And so they want to go out and play the role, I don't know, what's the role of an idiot? Is that a victim or a villain? I don't know what role that is, but that's the role they want to go down because they don't understand you have wisdom, wisdom based on experience. I've already done that. I've already chased that dream. I've already liked that kind of girl or guy, whatever is appropriate for you. I've already gone down that path, right? I learned from it. Don't go there. Ah, you don't know what you're talking about. Okay, well, someday you'll see whether or not I do, right? Uh, The guide also, though, has a lot of empathy for the hero, because they've, like I said, they've been there. They've gone through that path. They understand how hard it is. And a, a true guide can have the empathy for a hero who is struggling along the path. And that's why what you see there is Obi-Wan, you know, sees him kind of re- reluctantly not want to go and sort of just, and he doesn't push him. He's like, I get it. I understand. I understand. Okay. Uh, and will we'll allow him at his own pace to move through the process. Uh, but then ultimately, one of the characteristics of a guide you see over and over again is that of sacrifice. Uh, that the guide will ultimately sacrifice himself uh, for the purpose or for the role of the story or oftentimes even for the hero himself. And you'll see the sacrificial motif. Now, what I find interesting in this is some of you might be, you know, might be critically looking at this going, why are we studying film design in church? This doesn't make any sense. I, I kind of get the sort of whatever. 
But do you understand that the stories that we are attracted to, we're attracted to them simply because they're reflecting how God has created us? Do you not see that? This isn't stuff that movie makers invented. This is stuff movie makers have stolen from life. They've stolen this from the way that the author of life has created life, that we will fall into the role of a villain or a victim, and we are repelled by that when we look at stories. We don't want to be that in our own life. We're uh, sort of inspired by the role of a hero, and even more so by the role of the guide. But what is the ultimate role of the guide? The guide so oftentimes ultimately does something sacrificial. Uh, It's like at the end of Charlotte's Web, what happens? The spider dies for the pig, right? Sacrificially gives herself for the pig. And it's the only time any of you ever cried about a spider dying, (laughs) right? Every other time, like, kill, 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 right? But no, no, I can't believe it. But the hero sacrificially gives them, or sorry, the guide sacrificially gives himself for the hero. What does Obi-Wan do? Spoiler alert, right? You know, ultimately gives himself for the sake of the hero. Um, what What did Luke's dad do? He didn't go the guide route, sort of, but did he? I don't know. Watch the movie sometime. You'll see. It's a fascinating tale. Um, So that's what a guide is. A guide uses their experience, uses their wisdom, uh, uses what they've learned over the years. They have great empathy, uh, but ultimately uh, takes on the role of sacrificially giving up themselves or their opportunities or even their very life for the one that they're trying to bring along. And so there's a great example of this in the Bible. I'm going to focus on the New Testament of uh, probably the greatest guide in all of the New Testament. Uh, anybody know who I'd be talking about? I always I was think to myself, like when I was sitting where you are, I used to try to play stump the pastor and try, oh, I know who he's going to talk about now. Who am I going to talk about? Jesus. Well, Jesus is always the right answer. Uh, yes, Jesus. But Jesus is not the central focal, other than Jesus, is not the central focal guide of the New Testament. Anybody know? Paul, it's interesting you say it. Paul's kind of the hero of the New Testament, if you will. So who's the guide to Paul? Well, that's who we're going to be talking about this morning. And so we're going to be looking at this guy. Maybe some of you have heard of him. Maybe you haven't. Uh, he first shows up over in Acts chapter 4. He's just a regular Joe going to church, literally a regular Joe going to church. In Acts chapter 4, what's happening is that the people have all come into Jerusalem for the big festival. All the Jewish people have come in there for the Passover festival. And at the Passover festival, as you may know the story, Jesus dies on the cross, and then he rises from the dead on the third day. And this kind of commotion made people want to stick around to see what was going on. In the same way that many people from around America have been drawn to what's going on in Asbury, Kentucky, and so they're drawn to see there's something, there's a move of God happening here. The same kind of thing, but on a greater scale, was happening in Jerusalem, and so people didn't want to leave, and so in Acts chapter 1, Jesus ascends up into the sky, and then in Acts chapter 2, Jesus, or Peter preaches a sermon, and all the people are excited, and in Acts chapter 3, persecution's beginning, but the people still don't want to leave, and so in Acts chapter 4, it says this, as all the believers were one in heart and mind. I'm in verse 32. And no one claimed any other possessions as their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in all of them that there was no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land sold houses and brought the money from the sales uh, to the apostles' feet. It was distributed to anyone who has need. And then he kind of tells a story about one of the, maybe the first time this happened or what sort of inspired people to do this. He says, there was this guy named Joe. Remember, I said he was an average Joe. A guy named Joe... Uh, who was a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles later called Barnabas, sold a field that he owned, and he brought the money, and he put it at the apostles' feet. There it is. That's where he begins the story. And so somewhere in there, the, the, you got this Levite. Uh, Levite means he's a priest, and you remember a lot of the priests weren't too excited about Jesus, but here's this guy, Joseph, who was a uh, Levite, and he 
is captivated by the message of Jesus Christ and what has happened, what the disciples have told him. And so he ends up sacrificially giving uh, something that he has, a possession of his, and he gives it there just to help keep the movement alive and keep it growing. And it was such an encouragement. And the way that he interacted with the disciples, he just was in a constant encourager. And this was his moment in his life where he's sort of taking on a heroic role. He's, he's accepting the call to heroically become more and more like Jesus Christ. And so he does that. And so that's where we begin to see his story. Well, The next time we see him pop up is over in chapter 9. In chapter 9, you've got a guy named Saul, which is later called Paul. So that's where many are like, I think it's Paul. No, Paul was a hero of the story. This is where Paul's hero story begins. Paul starts off not as a hero, but as a villain. And it starts off in Acts chapter 9. It says, Paul was breathing out murderous threats against the Christians. I think it's fair to say that's sort of the villain role in a story. Is it not? And so Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the Jewish council that ultimately sentenced Jesus to death. And so after Jesus dies on the cross, rises from the dead, you can imagine the Sanhedrin wasn't really excited about that kind of rumor or story. And so they wanted to sort of squash this real quick because it was really making them look bad. And so Paul says, well, I'll do that for you, no problem. And so he takes it upon himself to sort of lead the movement to drive out all of the Christians. And so he successfully drives all the Christians Uh, out of public view in Jerusalem. And they end up scattering up to other towns. And Paul says, well, I can't let them go hide up there. And so he gets permission from the Jewish council to chase them up to Damascus. And so he heads off to Damascus to go arrest and find more Christians to arrest them and have them put to death. On his way up there to Damascus, uh, Jesus meets him on the road. And he's like, Paul, what you doing, man? It's it's a loose translation of the Greek. He says, Paul, what you doing, man? why Why are you coming at me? And Paul's kind of silent at that moment. He says, I, I don't want you to, to persecute me any longer. I want you to go and tell the world about me. And you're going to be my man, Paul. And so Paul is struck with blindness. And then he goes up to a guy named Jairus' house. And um, I can't remember the guy's Ananus, Ananus, whatever. Um, it's in there. You can read the story for yourself later. See what I'm, see what I'm getting wrong. Um, he gets up there and he can see. And then he just starts going to town telling everybody about Jesus. Well, he ends up getting run out of town because he's telling everybody about Jesus and he ends up making his way back to Jerusalem. Well, when he gets back to Jerusalem, he's all excited and he just goes, and who would you go look for if you came to Jerusalem? The people who were with Jesus, right? So he goes looking for the disciples, just knocking on doors. And so it says, we pick up the story in verse 26. It says, when, when he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join up with the disciples, but they were all a little afraid of him, as you can imagine. Like they thought he was a double agent, right? It says, not believing he was really a disciple. Like, no, 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 no. We've seen this whole thing before. He's going to act like he's one of us. He's going to infiltrate our group. And then he's going to rat us all out. And he's going to take us all out. Nope, not going to go down that road. Not going to buy that. And so it says, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. And he told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and what the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly for the name of the Lord. So there it is. This is where Barnabas, who's been this encouraging guy, has built up this reputation among the disciples there in Jerusalem and was such an encouragement to all of them. He's like, no guys, I can vouch for this guy. I've been telling you, he's the real deal. And it's because of what Barnabas does that Paul is now able to interact with guys like Peter and, and Paul and, sorry, Peter and James and John and all these guys who are, all the other ones who are singing folk songs, right? Uh, he gets to, he, he's able to interact with all of them there in Jerusalem. And it's only because of what Barnabas does. Otherwise, he'd have been shut out. And so just imagine the opportunity and the stories that he got to hear and the training he got to, he got to receive simply because Barnabas was willing to open doors for this guy. 
And that's one of the things guides do, is they introduce you to the right people, and they open doors for you. And I think back over my life, when I first felt the call to ministry, I was in college and was in a fraternity and kind of doing that whole scene. And when I felt the call to ministry, I came back to campus and was like, that's it, I'm gonna get involved, I'm gonna find a church, I'm gonna get involved, and I'm gonna start serving because uh, the call to ministry begins now. And so I remember showing up at this church at this huge college ministry, like you know, three, four, 500 college students would come to this one church service, and I'm all excited, this would be great. Uh, the pastor was a chaplain of the football team, and it was just, man, this would be amazing. And I get there, and I am stared down by the leadership students in that ministry. Like, what is he doing here? He can have no part of us. He's just another frat boy coming here trying to pick up on our girls. And sure enough, I ended up going out with a girl from the ministry on a Friday night, and then I saw her at church on Sunday, and she wouldn't talk to me because she talked to those guys. And those guys told her what kind of guy I really was and not to trust me, and that's the way things went for a while until a guy named Jeff Jordan Jeff Jordan was a upperclassman who had built up a great reputation within the group, and he's like, no, I think we can, we can give this guy a shot. And it's only because Jeff reached out to me that it changed the course of my opportunities that I had there. Somebody asked me recently, where did I preach my first sermon? It was there at that college ministry. But that's only because Jeff Jordan vouched for me when I first got there. And part of the reason why I mention that is because uh, he was one of those who lost his life to COVID uh, a couple years ago. And I just think about the impact he had on my life, and I'm part of his legacy because of the open doors that he gave for me. And he was a Barnabas in my life and so many other lives along the way. And there's been other people maybe like that for you who opened a door for you, who brought you in to that community. So one of the roles that guides do is they share their contacts, they share their opportunities, and they vouch for somebody when there's reason to vouch. Now, don't go vouch for somebody that you don't know about, right? Don't go vouch for some guy who really is a double agent. Like, I really think you should take him back. I really think he's changed. I don't think he'll hit you anymore. You better know before you say that. So for whatever reason, Paul had some reason to believe, or sorry, Barnabas had some reason to believe Paul and had some understanding of what had happened up there in Damascus or where he was. And so he vouches for him and that opens the door for him there to provide ministry. Now, the next time we see Barnabas on the scene is in chapter 11. In chapter 11, what's happened is that uh, up in Antioch, some non-Jewish people have begun a relationship with Jesus Christ. And of course, the racist Jews down in Jerusalem didn't think that that was appropriate, real, or possible, and so they had to go send somebody to investigate it, right? Like, what's this thing going on at Asbury? I don't really know if I believe that's really moving. We better go investigate that to make sure this is really okay. That's kind of the way Christians sometimes used to think back then. Good thing that's all gone now. So it says when they had heard about this, it says they sent Barnabas up to Antioch to check it out. When Barnabas gets up there, he sees what the grace of God had done, and, and he was glad, and he was encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord and to all their hearts. And so Barnabas, he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, with great faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him up to Antioch. And for the whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. Disciples were first called Christians there at Antioch. So here is Barnabas, who has a key role in the fact that you all call yourselves now Christians. So just an interesting tidbit note about Barnabas is that he was uh, a key player in us all being called Christians. And But what's he doing here? He sees that there's a teaching opportunity. He sees that there's some uh, leadership ministry opportunities. And instead of saying, oh, I'm the hero of this story, this will all be about me, this is a great opportunity I have for myself, what's he do? He does what a guy does, and he looks back to Paul and he says, hey, Paul, 
I think this would be a great opportunity for you to learn to ministry, learn how to preach, learn how to teach, learn how to pastor. This would be the perfect opportunity. It's away from Jerusalem. There's no skepticism about your past and your past history. So come on up here. I think this would be great. And sure enough, he does. And it says, and during that time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Um, one of them was named Agabus, and he stood up. Uh, through the Spirit, uh, predicted there would be a severe famine that would spread all over the Roman world. And so disciples, each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. And they did this, and they sent their gifts back with the elders, uh, back to the elders with Barnabas and Saul. So there was a famine that was coming, and so Barnabas and Saul ended up, you know, being sort of missionaries from the church back down to Jerusalem. And so Barnabas and Saul go and do that. But the thing about Barnabas is he didn't hoard the teaching opportunity for himself. He does what a guy does. And so he looks to share the spotlight with someone else and to bring them along, to train them, to mentor them, to teach them. This is what disciples makers do, is they bring somebody along, providing them opportunities. Next time we see uh, Barnabas is over in Acts chapter 13. Now in Acts 13, I gotta point out something about the Greek language before you really understand what happens in the story. Greek's an interesting language because it doesn't have subject, verb, predicate. If you remember back to grammar, some of you are like, oh please, well, what was this now? Okay. In your sentence, you have the subject noun, bill, verb, plays, predicate noun, baseball. Bill plays baseball. That's the way we structure our sentences. Greeks just kind of throw the words in the sentence and you sort of make sense of it. But every once in a while, the, the structure or the word order matters. Sometimes they'll kind of put things together to say, you know, this is what they want to emphasize. Either the, like whatever comes first, oftentimes what they want to emphasize, either the action verb or a person. But whenever you see lists of names, quite oftentimes the names will be listed very specifically in order of prominence in the way that they're listed. And so when you read about this in Acts 13, you'll notice it says, now the church in Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. And it gives them a list. Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius, Manon, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. So here you have Barnabas is listed first of great prominence. Then you got Saul listed last. I think it's kind of comical that Saul is listed last when the guy listed before him was a childhood friend of none other than Herod. They were talking about Herod, who was son of Herod the Great, who tried to kill Jesus when he was a baby. This is also the same Herod who had John the Baptist beheaded. And this is also the Herod who was there and presided over Jesus' trial. And remember, Pilate didn't want to have to deal with it. So he's like, oh, you're from Galilee? We'll pull Herod down here. So one of the, that guy, Herod, childhood friends is now a pastor or a, a leader in the church, that guy's listed of a greater prominence than even Paul at this point. I just think that was kind of funny, right? So anyways, so here um, it says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Lord uh, through the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I've called them. And so after they fasted and prayed some more, they placed their hands and they sent them off. So the two of them went on their way down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of the Lord, the Jewish synagogues. And John was with them as their helper. As they traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos, where they met a Jewish sorcerer. It was a false prophet named Bar-Jesus, yada, yada, yada. Um, yada, 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 some thing. And it says, so the proconsul sent for an intelligent man to help on this. And so they called for Barnabas and Saul. So every time you mention, you see it's Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul, they keep coming. Um, and so when they get there, though, um, Barnabas sort of pushes Saul. He's like, hey, I think you're ready for this. And so although they call for Barnabas and Saul, what you'll see is that Barnabas pushes Paul out there to be the one to really deal with the whole conflict. And so Paul kind of takes center stage here in Acts chapter 13. And so Paul is the one who confronts this guy and does the ministry there. And then when you come down, verse 13, the next time you see him listed, it says, from Paphos, Paul and his companions... 
Barnabas didn't even mention anymore. Now, who's one of the companions? Barnabas, he's one of the companions, right? So it goes from Barnabas and Paul, Barnabas and Paul, Barnabas and Paul, Barnabas and Paul, and then here it switches to Paul and his companions, or you will see some more Paul and Barnabas. And every time you see them mentioned in a ministry context from here on out, it is Paul and Barnabas. What's happened? Barnabas has basically said, I'm going to exit the stage, and I'll be over here behind the scenes, and Paul, you take center stage now. That's what a guide does. Ultimately, a guide sacrifices their role in the organization for Paul. And so it says, Paul and his companions sailed from Pergia down to Pamphylia, where John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Meanwhile, Barnabas' feelings were hurt and was all butthurt about the thing, and he did because he was no longer the center of attention. So he did everything he could to undermine what Paul was doing. No, it doesn't say that at all. It doesn't say that at all. That is oftentimes what happens in our day and time, right? We get upset because somebody else stole the spotlight from us and won't let us in. This actually happens later in Scripture. Some guy you've never heard of, I guarantee it, Diotrephes. Diotrephes, anybody heard of him? Yeah, a great guy from the Bible. It's like one of those Bible quiz answers, right? Diotrephes, never heard of him. Why have you never heard of him? Well, because he shows up in 3 John. So John writes these three little books, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, kind of the end of the Bible, just before the book of Revelation. And in 3 John, chapter 1, verse 9, it says this, I wrote to this church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first, won't welcome us. So when I do show up, I'm going to call attention to what he's doing and how he's spreading malicious lies and nonsense about us. And not satisfied with that, he even refuses to welcome other believers. He also stops any of those who want to do so, and he puts them out of the church. Let me just translate this for you. Whoever this guy Diotrephes is, who's leading this church, doesn't want John the Apostle to come. He will not welcome John, you know, the guy who Jesus loved? Remember that guy? The guy who wrote the Gospel of John, the guy who was there caring for Jesus' mother at the cross? No, he's not welcome in my church. He ain't good enough. Who are you? Nobody knows or cares now. Why? Because you rejected the role that God had called you to. Yeah, you may have been a hero in this church at one point in time for coming in and being a leader, but because you would never step aside out of the spotlight, you quickly become the villain again. And so that's why you've never heard of this guy. But not so with Barnabas, because Barnabas sees that this is my role is to be the guide, to be the shepherd, to be the disciple maker. And so he invests in Paul, and he opens doors for Paul, and he trains and he teaches Paul, and then he pushes Paul out to take center stage. And now it's Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas. And the only people who ever say Barnabas and Paul is that old church, that old fuddy-duddy church back in Jerusalem who sent Barnabas out in the first place. If you look at Acts 15, the only time you'll ever see Barnabas and Paul again is when it's associated with that the old people who don't understand what's going on out there in the ministry field. But that's a different story for a different time. And so What's really neat about all this is it's kind of like one of those, you ever, you ever uh, watch, this is for us older folks, remember Paul Harvey, right? If, this is, you youngins don't know this. Whenever you would, he had, I can't do a Paul Harvey uh, impression, uh, impersonation because it was such a distinct voice. His voice was so distinct when you would hear it on the radio, you would literally stop what you're doing, tell everybody to be quiet because you wanted to hear the story, right? Because he would always tell the story that would end with, and now you know the rest of the story. And so what he would do is he would tell you the story about somebody that you know, only you have no idea that's who he's talking about, and then he gives you this whole backstory you never heard anything about, and then he gets to the very end, and now you know the rest of the story. Well, Barnabas is kind of one of those, now you know the rest of the story, because here's the thing. Joseph Roland Barbera, who was a famed cartoon uh, 
duo of Hanna-Barbera was actually an Italian Catholic who came over to America, grew up in church, and when he was writing out what became their famed uh, flagship cartoon series, known as the Flintstones, uh, uh, had as a sidekick, or the guide to Fred, as one Barnabas Rubble, as you know, Barney, and now you know a made-up story that has nothing to do with reality. Um, so, <laughs> no, really, there is a rest of the story here, though, actually. There is a, there's a rest of the story. Uh, and how's it do with this guy, John? Uh, did you notice that when they set off, they took John with them? So, so Barnabas and Paul and John was there with them. Well, I also mentioned in there that when, you get, when they leave Paphos, uh, things start to get a little bit difficult, and so John leaves them, right? Well, when you go to Acts chapter 15, um, Barnabas and Paul are about to set off on another missionary journey, and it's like, hey, let's get the group. You know, Paul goes to Barnabas and says, hey, let's get the gang back together. Let's go back out, and let's go encourage all the churches that we had started before. And Barnabas is like, all right, let's go. And he's like, come on, John, let's go. And Paul's like, whoa, whoa, no, 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 no. I don't have any room for quitters on, on my trip. And Barnabas is like, but yeah, come on, man. You know, he made a mistake. You know, he's learned, he's grown, because that's what Barnabas does, right? He's always vouching for somebody. So here's trying to vouch for this guy, John. And Paul's like, I'm not having it. I'm sorry. I don't want the guy with me. He's a quitter. I don't have any room for quitters. Uh, when the going gets tough, he gets going, and I don't want to waste my time with him. And so they have... A dispute over this. And Barnabas looks back and he says, well, if we can't agree, then I guess there's no we right now. And so why don't you go off with who you want to go off with, and I'm going to continue to mentor and coach John. And so sure enough, you see from that point on, it's Paul and Silas are going out on a missionary journey. What's kind of interesting, coincidentally, Paul does nothing on that journey for a long time. Everywhere he tries to go, God prevents him from going. I want to go here. Nope, can't go there. I want to go here. Go there. It's almost like as if God's saying, Paul, with that attitude, if you don't want to embrace the role of a guide with that attitude, I've got nothing for you because you've been the hero of this story, but the next phase is for you to become a guide to others, and you're unwilling to do that, so I'm unwilling to partner with you for a while. And so sure enough, it's not until he dead ends into the ocean. He's like, I can't go north. I can't go south. I came from that way. Where else am I going to go? And it's not until he gets to the end of the line, so to speak, that God finally gives him a vision. He's like, okay, I'll send you to Europe, and that's what happens on that missionary journey. Well, John ends up going out with, with Barnabas, and they continue on. And later on, you end up seeing this over in the book of Colossians. Uh, one of these churches that Paul eventually ends up going to on his second or third missionary journey uh, is an area near Colossae. And so he's writing uh, this letter to the Colossian church. And he says, my fellow prisoner, um, Articus, sends you greetings, as does John, the cousin of Barnabas. Oh, maybe that's why Barnabas was so willing to take him on. But he says, I, he sends you greetings with Barnabas and with John, as in, John's been here with me. And he writes this, you've received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. And that's kind of where I wonder, what instructions did they receive about John? <laughs> did Paul before say, hey, if this guy John shows up, let me tell you what he did to me, right? Maybe he says, you, re you receive instructions about him, but hey, welcome him as you would me. I've had to change your heart on this guy. He's a different guy now, right? Uh, or maybe he's just saying, you received, maybe at some point Paul tells a story about John's transformation because of what Barnabas does for him. I don't know. I don't know what the background is, but either way, he, he kind of makes this note of, hey, you've heard some backstory on him. You need to welcome him. And now here Paul is finally embracing the role of guide like Barnabas did for him. Accept him as you would me, just as Barnabas did for Paul way back in the day. And then here's another neat thing. This guy shows up again at the end of Paul's life, shortly before we believe Paul dies, uh, he writes a letter to Timothy, another guy that Paul has guided. And he says, right now, only Luke is with me. So Luke, the one who's writing 
Acts and the book of Luke. He says, only Luke is with me, but get John and bring him with you because he is very helpful to me in my ministry. Why was John so helpful to him in ministry? Dare I say it's because Barnabas invested in him and was the guide to John in the same way that he was the guide to Paul? So, why do I say that Barnabas is the key central figure to the New Testament? Because I haven't yet told you the rest of the story. This guy, John, decided that he needed to, he, he spent some time also with Peter, we find that later, and he decided he needed to write down some of the things that Peter was saying about Jesus' life. And so he wrote a story about Jesus' life. And because his name was John and always gets confused with John the Apostle, it says over in Acts chapter 15 that John was most often called Mark. And so you know him as the author of the Gospel of Mark. And what we read about is the fact that Mark was the very first of the stories of Jesus to be written. Luke later, inspired by Mark, and Matthew later was also inspired by Mark to write parallel accounts of the story of Jesus. And then John set out to write in another account that sort of told the stories that Matthew, Mark, and Luke hadn't told. And so you could directly attribute the first 17 books of the Bible written by Mark and inspired by Mark or written by Paul or a story of the life of Paul. The first 17 books can all be directly attributed to the ministry of Paul and to Mark. And both of those two guys would not be who they were if it wasn't for Barnabas at the center of all of that guiding along the way. And now you know the rest of the story. You see, the guide, when we think, oh, who's the guide in the New Testament? Oh, Jesus, it's, 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 it's Paul, right? No, you know the heroes. That's the thing about a guide. We don't typically know the guides. But the guides are sacrificially behind the scenes, promoting and pushing the hero to be the central focus of the story. But the hero wouldn't be the hero. Paul wouldn't be Paul. And John Mark wouldn't be John Mark if it wasn't for the role of the guide the shepherd, the disciple maker, Barnabas. So in your journey, you may look at your life and say, you know, I don't feel like my life's been all that heroic. I've been through a lot, I've learned a lot, but I don't know if I've really accomplished a lot. Maybe the greatest calling God has put upon your life is for the role of the guide that you'll take on one day. Barnabas, as far as I know, he didn't write anything. But most of what was written that you know today about the story of Jesus Christ and what happened in the early church is directly attributed to his ministry. And maybe that's a calling God's put up on your life. To move from accepting the role to heroically become more like Jesus Christ to leading others to do the same like Barnabas has done. We join us as we close our time in prayer. Father, what an inspirational story to remind us, Father, that sometimes the roles that you've called us to is simply to help others take center stage. Maybe the most heroic thing that we will ever do is to work in a child care ministry, Father, to impart our wisdom and knowledge into the next generation. And who knows, but that one of these children, one of these youth will one day go on to change the world. I know I can look back over those who invested in me, my love for the Old Testament. I still remember my Sunday school teacher who gave that to me. So Father, I just ask her that we might embrace the calling not just to have a loving relationship with you, but also the calling to be disciple makers and to invest in others, open doors for others, provide opportunities for others, and ultimately allow them to take center stage in the story 
And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.